you to take your Bibles and turn with me this evening to the book of Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, and I direct your attention to verse 16. Colossians 3 verse 16, let me say from the start here uh, that this is by no means an ordinary sermon, so it's not what we're accustomed to. Uh, typically here on Wednesday evenings or on, on the Lord's Day, uh, what follows is the substance of a paper, an address that I delivered at the colloquium uh, last, last week for the Presbytery. And while we don't ordinarily do that, in this case, I think it is uh, not only appropriate for here on Wednesday night, but especially aimed at our edification. So my first priority is this congregation and some of the reflections that are contained uh, in what was an address, uh, I think may prove helpful to us as, as a congregation. And we hope and pray that the Lord will make it so. But I would direct your attention for starts uh, to Colossians chapter three and verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The title of uh, what you find in your bulletin is Christ in the Psalms. For your information, uh, the title of the address last week was called Lyric Echoes, One Message in Two Mouths. And you'll understand more of what that means in, in a moment. Lyric echoes, one message in two mouths. No doubt you have stood on the edge of a precipice and filled your lungs, shouted out into the expanse, and waited. A few seconds pass as the sound waves cross over the open space, reflect off the face of an adjacent mountain, and bounce back to you. In the echo, the same words and intonation and cadence that leave your mouth enter your ears upon the return of the sound. As kids, of course, we loved echoes. We loved uh, to, to create echoes because we were hearing ourselves from outside of ourselves after a brief interval of time. So here you have what amounts to a very simple picture, right? This is a very familiar and simple picture, but I'm not gonna connect, I'm not gonna connect immediately that, that illustration to the truth that it, uh, that it pictures. I'm gonna do that more in, in what follows. And so this evening, we're, we're really coming to a familiar subject, not only for our own congregation, but for the church at large. But I hope we can come uh, to this subject of Christ in the Psalms um, with something of a fresh perspective that is rooted soundly uh, in the scriptures themselves. And it draws on some of uh, my recent reflections on Christ and, and the Psalms. So I've been, as I told the brothers last week, I've been tugging on one thread in my own reflections and meditations, and there are lots of threads that can be tugged on under this theme of Christ and the Psalms. I've been tugging on one thread and giving more concentrated consideration to a specific angle, which 
I hope will indeed be edifying for us as we peer into the pages of, of Holy Scripture. So I'm going to move from the conceptual to start with to what is concrete. So from the, the kind of the principles, if you will, to the practical. And really, we would diminish our edification uh, without both of, of these elements. Because first of all, we need to clarify our approach to the Psalms. We need to, we need to get clear in our minds our approach to the book of Psalms as informed by, by the scriptures themselves. And then after that, we can, indeed, we must draw out the implications, draw out the implications in terms of experimental religion or Christian experience, in terms of our own private reading of the Psalms, as well as in the, the preaching of the Psalms. So there's three things uh, this evening under this theme. We're going to begin, first of all, with Christ in the Psalms. So first of all, Christ in the Psalms. And so we're beginning here on what amounts to a well-trodden path upon which everyone, all evangelicals, would, would agree. And this helps us, I think, to gain at least our bearings. We hear the language Christ in the Psalms. There are certain texts that most people immediately turn to in, in hearing that language. And it would include, for example, Luke 24, where we read in verse 27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then you go on later on in that same chapter, Luke 24, to verse 44. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, thus it is written and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. So here we see, ah, uh, we, we expect to find Christ in the Psalms because the Lord has told us that when our understanding is opened, we'll see him there. And this draws on what the Lord had said earlier in his ministry in John 5, for example, in verse 39, where he's interfacing with the Pharisees, and he says, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think that ye have eternal life, but they are they which testify of me. So all of this gives us some of our, our bearings. And so in light of these kind of passages, we could multiply them. There are really few, if any, that would deny that we find Christ in the Psalms. The question is, how? And the question is, where? And this opens up more. If you're thinking in terms of, of history, and you'll bear with me in some of this, you know, with the, with the emergence of the Enlightenment and some other developments in philosophy, there was a, a move toward reductionism. So children, the uh, reductionism is re reducing things, right? So uh, you have a whole bunch of toys in your toy box, and you take them all out, and you take some of them to Goodwill, and you've reduced how many toys are in your toy box now, right? So there's been this move toward reductionism in many areas of thought that have begun to hold sway. And within the church, one example of this is the dominance of, of what's called grammatical historical interpretation. So the grammatical historical interpretation of Scripture. We're interpreting Scripture 
with an eye toward the grammatical content as well as with regards to the historical context. And this, of course, served as a very important corrective to prevailing heirs. But while this method remains truly indispensable to faithfully interpreting the Bible, the problem is that it also supplanted all else, leaving us with less, not more, in the process. So when men preach from the book of Psalms, they'll come and they'll study uh, the historical setting and see how the words of the psalm fit within that framework. You go to Psalm 52 and you find out in the title that the context is, is Doeg the Edomite who told Saul that David had gone to the house of Ahimelech. And we think, okay, that's helpful. And it is helpful. And we go, we turn to 1 Samuel 22 and we begin to read what came before that and in it and after it. And we get all the kind of the context and we bring that back to Psalm 52 and it helps us understand. It clarifies the language that's used there, the meaning, the significance of what's being said. We can do the reverse. We can take Psalm 52 with us to Psalm uh, to 1 Samuel 22. And it also helps give us background of what's going on in David's mind uh, while all these things are happening. So that historical context is helpful. But preachers will also study the language itself of the psalm, you know, defining the meaning of the words and the purpose and the doctrines and all of the practice and so on that's derived from the passage. Then what happens is they draw a direct line between the truths found in David and the application to the contemporary audience. And so sermons on the Psalms often take this kind of shape. But in doing so, as I'll attempt to demonstrate, we're not actually drawing a straight line between David and us. We are, in fact, drawing a deeply curved line that must be bent in order to go around and bypass part of what lies at the heart of the text, as I hope to show. Furthermore, uh, this, this methodology affects what is meant when we, when we speak about seeing Christ in the Psalms. And it has resulted in a category called the Messianic Psalms. So a restricted list of about 13 or so Psalms that in their prophetic content are deemed to point to the fulfillment in Christ's Ministry. So you think of Psalm 2 and Psalm 22 and 69 and 110 and so on, right? These are in a class that are now called the Messianic Psalms. And so for many, Christ in the Psalms means turning to those portions of the book that explicitly foretell of Christ's death and resurrection and ascension and session and so on. And all of this is good. It's very good. But it is not all that is good. I would propose that we have reason to question this sort of reductionist approach. And the reason is because we must derive our method of interpretation from the scriptures themselves. This is super important. The Bible itself should teach us how to interpret the Bible. And, you know, you can look at the, the, the later Old Testament books, how they're using the earlier Old Testament books. But especially and most importantly, the New Testament use of the Old Testament. 
that informs and guides our own reading of the Old Testament. And nowhere is this more important than in our understanding of the Psalms. Why? Well, for a number of reasons. The book of Psalms is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament, more than any other Old Testament book. And they demonstrate Christ as the object of, of all the Psalms. And so we have citations of the Psalms, which are applied as references to Christ in the New Testament. Right? So if left to ourselves, contrary to what to what some might conclude, for example, you know, Psalm 2, some might say, well, David, David obviously is the king and the anointed and the one seated in Zion and the son and so on and so forth. But we turn to the New Testament and in Acts 4, verses 25 and 26, we discover, no, that that is referring to Christ. He is the one who is the king, the anointed, the one who's seated as son in Zion and so forth. And we see that verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 2 actually refer, in Acts 4, to the exaltation of Christ. And then it's quoted again in Acts 13, 3, and it's quoted again in Hebrews 1, verse 5, and in chapter 5, verse 5, all referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we recognize, you know, Psalm 2 is clearly messianic. It's clearly a reference to the Lord Jesus. But the New Testament makes fuller use of the Psalms in reference to Christ. And this includes psalms you would not necessarily recognize at first pass as references to Christ. So you come to Psalm 8, and in the middle of Psalm 8, verses 4 and 5, you know, it's setting forth the preeminence of man in the created order. All these other things are here, and man is created as the pinnacle, if you will, of the created order. And everything is given uh, to, in terms of dominion to him and so on. And that's, that's clear. We read that, and it's appropriate for us to draw all of that. That's true. That's all there. But is that all that's there? Well, we turn in the New Testament to Hebrews 2, verses 6, and, 6 to 9, and that demonstrates that Psalm 8 is actually a reference to, to Jesus Christ. You know, in, Psalm, in, in Hebrews 2, it's saying, you know, all these things, is quoting Psalm 8, all these things have been put under the dominion of man, but we do not yet see all things put under the dominion of man. But we see Jesus, the passage says. And it goes on to apply it to the Lord Jesus. Or you think of Psalm 19. And there, we know this, we know these Psalms well. And so Psalm 19, the first section is about the glory of God that is revealed in creation, general revelation, the revelation of God in the created order. And then the second and third sections are about his revelation in his word. Right? We're familiar with that. And, and the Psalm is teaching that for certain. In verse 4 of Psalm 19, it says, Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the, ends of, to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. But you turn to Romans 10, verses 17 and 18, and it teaches that it is about the gospel radiating from the Son of Righteousness as well. You go to Psalm 18, right? The title tells us it's David is delivered from the hand of Saul. Romans 15, Romans 15 verses 8 and 9 Quote from Psalm 18, verse 49, as a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. We just sang last Lord's Day from Psalm 41. And we know the context there is David being betrayed by Ahithophel. In verse 9, as was pointed out to us by, 
Mr. Carnes, who was preaching. It says, Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, and hath lifted up his heel against me. David's referring to what Ahithophel's done. But Jesus applies this to himself in John 13, verse 18, obviously in reference to Judas Iscariot. What we're seeing is that David's life experience is being guided by providence to foreshadow Christ's with the intention of setting forth the Lord Jesus. David's own feelings reflect the experience and feelings of the Lord Jesus Christ himself in his humiliation and in his, his exaltation. And so understanding Christ in the Psalms is important, not only because it's quoted so often in the New Testament, but because the Psalms hold a unique place within the canon. First of all, as the permanent manual of praise in all ages, including the post-apostolic era. So they're sufficient as Christian praise after Christ's ascension and so on. But furthermore, they're unique because the, the Psalms bear a special relation to Jesus Christ that is distinct in some ways, not in all ways, but in some ways to other portions of the Old Testament. For example, the narratives and so on. So in his prophetic office, Christ, of course, speaks by the Spirit in and through every word in the Scriptures. And the whole Bible points to him. But the Psalms are his own personal songs. That is, they are expressions of his life and experience. He embodies them. The Lord Jesus Christ exposes the depth of his own soul and invites us to peer directly into the depths of his glory through them. Well, to get at what this means, we need to look a little closer. We started with Christ in the Psalms. Secondly, the Psalms in Christ. The Psalms in Christ. When we venture to think about Christ in the Psalms, we should first consider the Psalms in Christ in order to better reach our destination. They are not just about Christ. They are the songs of Christ. They are all, all 150, uniquely his songs. In other words, he is the subject, not just the object. He is the I, and not just the thou in the text. He is the one who himself is speaking. They, they not only point to him, they issue from him as the primary speaker. They contain Christ's words in the first person. That means he is the one speaking and the one spoken about at the same time. And you think in terms of some portions of the Psalms, things are being spoken to the church. Things are being spoken to the believer. You know, glorious things are spoken of the Zion, for example. But in those cases, Christ is the one speaking it, not just us. It's not just us saying glorious things are spoken of the you know, Zion, city of God, and so on. We're, we are affirming that. 
But it is in the first instance what Christ himself is saying to his church, what he himself is affirming about his church. Well, as I said to the brothers last week, the pedigree for this insight stretches from prior to the Enlightenment back to the ancient church. And I wonder, to myself at least, if any era was more saturated with the Psalter than the patristic age. They, of course, produced voluminous commentaries on the Psalms and so on, but their worship was suffused with psalmody. Presbyters had to memorize the whole Psalter as a qualification for holding office. Uh, the, the, the early churches went through the entire Psalter publicly once a week, every week. And so Athanasius, Chrysostom, Basil, Augustine, and many others spoke of how the Psalms filled the daily life of believers. Now, the Reformed churches in the First and Second Reformations reflect the same similar pattern, but you, you're familiar with that history, whereas this other perhaps we're, we're less familiar with. And I say all of that to say this, the ancient church would be puzzled and perplexed by the contemporary reading of the Psalms. Why? in part because they approached the Psalms with a different set of questions than those asked by modernity. And I'm going to eliminate some technical jargon and vocabulary here. But one example of this includes the fact that they approached the text with an eye to who is speaking in the text. That is to say, the person's and specifically to divine persons speaking in the Psalms. So we're not referring here simply to the Holy Spirit as the divine author who inspired the scriptures. We're actually referring to all three persons of the Trinity. So let me, let me give you a very easy, familiar, indisputable example. You go back to Psalm 2, which I mentioned earlier, verses 6 to 9. When it says in verse 5, then shall he speak, and then verse 6, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Who is the he that is speaking? Who is the I? Who is the my? Well, clearly it is the Father, God the Father that we're hearing there. And then in verses 7 and 9, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession, and so on. We hear the words of the Father speaking to the Son. But actually, to be more accurate, it is the Son who is speaking. Because in verse 7 it says, I will declare the decree, the Lord hath said unto me, thou art my Son, and so on. The Son is quoting or repeating the words of the Father. They are the words of the Father in the mouth of the Son. But notice, stop for a second, notice what is happening here. We are being invited to listen in, to eavesdrop on a conversation within the Godhead. We are listening in on a conversation before we join it ourselves. Well, this, this recognition, this kind of thing, provided the patristics with rich, resources for articulating various components of Trinitarian doctrine. But that is the fruit gleaned. The fruit stems from the roots 
of the kind of questions we bring to, to the text itself. Another easy and indisputable example is Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said unto, said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Verse 4, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Here again, the Father is speaking to the Son. So we're going to build on this. Hang with me. We're going to build on this, but we first need verification. We learn to bring these kind of questions about the persons speaking in the Psalms. We learn this from the New Testament, which teaches us to do so. So you go to Hebrews chapter 1, and as you know, because we've been preaching through Hebrews with normal sermons, unlike this one, we've been preaching through Hebrews. And, and you know that, you know, if you were to stop and say to yourself, okay, give me two, the two passages in the whole New Testament that set forth the glory, the, the, the supremacy, the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ more than any other, you would say to yourself, no doubt, Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. Right? So there in Hebrews 1, where the Christ's supremacy is being set forth, you know, in order to set forth that supremacy, the Psalms are quoted seven times in the compass of a very short chapter. But notice, look more carefully. Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, is quoted as the words of the Father to the Son, Hebrews 1, verses 8 to 9. Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27, as the words of the Father to the Son, in verses 10 and 12 of Hebrews 1. And thou, Lord, this is the Father speaking to the Son, and thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as it doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou uh, fold them up. So we're, we're seeing clues here from, from the New Testament. Now, predominantly, it is the Lord Jesus Christ himself who is speaking. So we have words to Christ, or we have the words of or from Christ in the Psalms. So Psalm 40 Verses 7 to 9, Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. I have preached righteousness in the great congregation, and so on. Hebrews 10 tells us that's Christ speaking. Christ is speaking there. Psalm 22, verse 22, which is quoted in Hebrews 2, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will praise thee. Right? That is put into the mouth of Jesus Christ. Psalm 22, verse 2. In Hebrews, 10, in Hebrews 2, verse 11. So it is Christ who is saying, I am in the midst of my brethren. I am in the midst of the congregation. I am the one praising in the midst of the church. You go to that Hebrews 2, verse 11. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all one. I wish we could come back. We need to come back to that at some point. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church, will I sing unto thee. Right, so we're, there's, there's, we're building momentum here. You go to the passage we started with in Colossians 3.16, and now it takes a little bit of a different hue. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Right, that's, that's loaded. It's the word of Christ that we want dwelling in us richly. This, this sort of approach that we're seeing of, of the Psalms in Christ, that is, in Christ's own mouth, 
A beautiful example of this that many of you will be familiar with from, from our free church heritage is Hugh Martin, right? We have books that have been republished by the Banner of Truth by him. And um, he was one of the free church ministers of the 19th century. Two books in particular, his abiding presence, where, how do I summarize this quickly? Kind of the thesis of that book is him saying, look, you open your gospels, the four gospels, and you think, okay, we're reading about what happened 2,000 years ago, and we're learning about what Jesus did and what he said. He said, you're wrong. What's happening is this. You open the four gospels, and the believer is actually holding immediate communion with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes, as it were, alongside of you and says, let me show you myself. And by the Spirit, as you read that, he shows you who he is at present through what you read about what he did and said in, in the gospel. So there's that communion with Christ. Then you go to his book, Shadow of Calvary, which many of you have read on the garden, the arrest, and um, the trial. And one of the beautiful things about that book is he comes into the garden, for example, and he's taking all the textual cues about what's going on. Very, it's brief, right? What's described. And then he goes back to the Psalms and he harvests them. And so he takes all of these Psalms, which are related to that, that place in the garden, and he puts them in Christ's mouth so that as we're reading about the transactions that are happening in the garden, it's fleshed out and filled out by here is what's going on in Christ's experience and soul and so on as we see in the Psalms placed into this context and so on. So he's a beautiful example of what we're of what we're, we're, we're describing here. You know, we, we all, I think, recognize, we, we hear often, we know more about the internal experience of Jesus Christ from the Psalms than we ever learn from the four Gospels. That's irrefutably true, and many people repeat that. But it's bigger than that. It's deeper than, than that. Now, there are, there are things, no doubt, I know, going through your mind at this point, and you're thinking, okay, these are the songs of Christ. These are the psalms that are in Christ. We're saying the whole of these psalms. But what do we do about the penitential psalms? You know, that kind of stumble there, right? Because Jesus is impeccable. Jesus is absolutely sinless. He is. So how can the words of, of penitence be found in the mouth of the Lord Jesus, if there's no sin, then there can be no confession of sin and so on. And yet we, we still kind of wrestle, don't we? Because we see the New Testament quoting Psalm 40, lo, I come in the volume of the book, and yet that psalm also has language about penitence, right? And then you see the New Testament quoting Psalm 69, multiple New Testament citations, and yet that psalm contains words of, of penitence. And so you begin to think, well, how do we know? Do we, do we like cut and paste and like, how do we know which parts to cut and paste and so on and so forth? And what I'm, what I'm trying to press home here is there is no cutting and pasting. There is no cutting and pasting. I mean, you, you can begin with, to make it simple, think of the implications of saying, of asserting that Jesus refused to sing any portion of the Psalms. And I mean, immediately I have six, seven, eight things that come like a flood, right? No one can, no one can sustain that, that sort of idea. Of course, Jesus, as, as the God-man, 
did sing the psalms with the rest of the congregation and in obedience to, to God who calls uh, for his people to sing them and so on. And so you can't say that Jesus wouldn't sing them, right? No one's that's untenable. And you can't say if Jesus sang them and he did, he had to sing them with faith because to sing them without faith would be sinful. And so that lodges us into, a, a, along with everything else I've been saying and saying, okay, then we have to understand what's going on here. And I think one, one way of getting at the answer to this question of what do we do with the penitential psalms is that Christ is standing in the psalms as in the unique capacity that he has as the one who has made curse for us, as the one who has made sin for us, Galatians 3.13, as the sin bearer, as the one who has sins imputed to him, right? The, the sins of the elect are truly imputed to the Lord Jesus Christ legally, credited to his account as a sinner in God's sight, suffering the penalty. This is why he sings Psalm 22 from the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because it suits him in that capacity. George Horn in his commentary on the Psalms says, Christ in the day of his passion, standing charged with the sin and guilt of his people, speaks of such their sin and guilt as, it they, as if they were his own, appropriating to himself those debts for which, in the capacity of a surety, he had made himself responsible. Well, that question is something that would take far longer to discuss here than we, than we have here this evening. The point I want to make is, you can even set that aside in your mind for a moment if you need to, the Psalms truly are the most Christocentric book of the Bible. And we have to see the pervasive Christology throughout the entire book. And let me pause here, because while these truths further cement the biblical content of sung praise, right, that sits rather obviously on the surface, Christ must sing his own word, it would be a grave mistake to park on that point and merely turn this into a discussion or some sort of polemic about psalm singing and so on. No. Our interests should drive us deeper into the spiritual realities conveyed in these truths, namely fellowship with God and the enrichment of our souls through deeper knowledge of Christ. None of his ordinances are ends in themselves, remember. They are ordained means to bring us to Christ and to the rich experience of communion and fellowship with him. And so that brings us to our third point, which is Christ's psalms in the believer. Christ's psalms in the believer. I said earlier that we are listening in on a conversation before we join it ourselves, but we do in fact join it in very important ways, the believer does. We hear Christ speaking to the Father or to us, before we join our voice in singing what becomes our words that are directed to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the result is what I'm going to describe as mutual inhabitation. In this communion with Christ, there is a mutual inhabitation. So we read in Colossians 3.16, 
let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And then we read, you know, Hebrews 2 quoting Psalm 22. In verse 3 of Psalm 22, it says, But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Christ actually inhabits the praises of his people. And so what this brings to the fore is, is this idea of mutual habitation. Christ is inhabiting our praises, and his word is inhabiting our hearts. And it pushes to the front Christ's presence in his praise. That the Lord Jesus Christ is actually present in the praise. That, that they're his songs before there are songs. And that our song is his song. And so Christ is singing them, and we are singing them simultaneously. You think of how this comes out in the prophet, Zephaniah 3, verse 14. We're being spoken to. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. So there's a call for us to sing. Three verses later, verse 17. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. There's, there's the Lord singing. We're being called upon to sing. He is, is singing over us. Same thing came out in Isaiah 12, verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Deuteronomy 10, verse 21 gives us something similar. God is our song. Since the Psalms are Christ's own songs, and since his word can never be divided or severed from himself, he is our song. And so our, what this does for the believer is our experience actually is flowing from Christ. It must. Our, our experience must flow from Christ. And this adds all sorts of richness to Christian experience. His word is dwelling in us richly. His mouth in our mouth. We are actually able in the singing of these praises to hold fellowship with Christ. But that Christ's presence in our praise is more than just one dimension, isn't it? So let me give you some examples. We need to make this concrete. So we come to song, psalms that are speaking about suffering. And we, we read through these, we, we sing through these songs. And we, we're conscious, we come and we realize this, this is actually opening up to us the heart of Christ. It's opening up the soul of Christ. We're peering into the glory of Christ. We're, we're seeing all that he entered. And it, his giving expression to all that he endured in terms of his own sufferings. And that's being brought to us in, in fresh ways. And then we think of Philippians 3, that I may know him and the fellowship of his sufferings. So then we, we come to these, we come to the psalm that we're looking at, and we're actually bringing our own suffering to the psalm as well. And on the one hand, we have all that is open to us with Christ's sufferings, 
and we're bringing our own sufferings, and the two are beautifully blended together so that we are actually in the expression of our own heart in these inspired praises of our suffering to God are entering into fellowship with Christ in them. The same thing could be said for all the cries for deliverance. Jesus was, it was a cry in Christ's mouth, the cry for deliverance was for himself, but it was also for ourselves. And it was his cry for us. All these things. You know, you think of the, the Psalms of joy and of triumph. The same is true. Right? Jesus says in that upper room discourse in John 14, 15, 16. You know, he's saying, here's what I will. I will that my joy be in you. So it's not just that our joy be, that we have joy, but that his own joy be in us, in the believer. And that our joy would be made full. So then we come back to the Psalms, and we come to these songs of joy and triumph, and we're seeing in them, here's the joy that was set before Christ. Here's the joy that is found in Christ's own soul, and we're bringing our own joy, but are we? We are, but there's more going on. It's actually Christ's joy that is being worked into our souls and expressed through our joy. Our, you know, we could, we could go on. You see the point. Same thing with the language of dependence and love to God and love to Zion. I mean, you think of Psalm 122. Jesus is the one saying, I joyed when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Right? He is delighting to be with his people in the public assembly of his church. He's joying to go up that holy hill of Mount Zion on the Sabbath to be among his people. Well, it's our joy as well. Our joy is united with his. We have fellowship with him in that joy. Or you think at the end of the psalm where, where it's saying that we desire peace and felicity for, for the church. That's in Christ's mouth before it's our mouth, in our mouth. Jesus is saying that he desires for there to be peace and felicity within his own house. And when we come along and say, this is our will, we, we, we long for this, O Lord, make it true, we're actually joining our voice with his voice. You think of the imprecatory psalms, right? You think of, like in Psalm 69, there's, imprecator there's imprecations in Psalm 69, which has a lot to do with Christ's death on the cross. The, imprecation, the imprecations are the words of Christ first. He is actually pronouncing the imprecations in those songs upon his enemies. And then we come along and we also sing those imprecations. And what's happening? Well, you think, children of your catechism, Christ is king. Christ as king subdues all his and our enemies. He's the one who subdues all his and our enemies. This is being brought out. His, his kingly office is being brought out. And we're willing his will. We're willing that Christ subdue all of his enemies. Even as the Father has promised, all of them would be made subject to him. And so there too we have layers and luster that's being, that being brought out. So the point is the original author, 
David, for example, as prophet, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, serves two roles. David speaks as the mouth of Christ, or far better, Christ speaks through the mouth of David. And David speaks as the mouth of believers, including for himself. The point is, one message is found in two mouths simultaneously. Our mouth and Christ's mouth, Christ's mouth and our mouth. So as we come to, this, uh, uh, we come to a particular psalm, Scripture teaches us to recognize these layers. First, the message is found in Christ's mouth. And we read it as such, peeling back what this is revealing to us about the glory of Jesus Christ himself. And then secondly, the message is found simultaneously in the believer's mouth, in our mouth, both corporately as the church and individually as a believer. Well, you come back now to my opening illustration, that echo, or the title that I gave to the address that I delivered at the colloquium. And it seeks to capture some of the, the points that are outlined here. Christ sings his own song. In our singing of his psalms, Christ receives the echo of his own words back into his ears, me mediated through our praise. Our voices blend with his voice in an anthem to his own glory so that we find one message in two mouths to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, help, hopefully this will help us some in our further meditations and reflections. We'll derive by God's grace some edification uh, from these things. Let's stand together for prayer. Almighty God in heaven, we come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> your only begotten Son, the one who is altogether glorious, the chief among 10,000, the one fairer than all the sons of men. And how we rejoice in every glimmer and glimpse that we are given of his glory. How thankful we are, O Lord, that that glory is revealed to us in this, in this book of the Psalms as well. And we pray, grant that we would have our understanding opened as the two on the road to Emmaus to behold Christ in the Psalms and the Psalms in Christ and that we would enter by saving grace into the experience of his songs in ourselves. O oh Lord, deepen and sweeten uh, our understanding and our savor and fellowship and communion with you. Uh, in this singing of, of the Psalms, we pray that it would feed our souls, that we would be enriched, and that we would flourish and be made fruitful to the glory of your own great name. For we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.